0: Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. I have a confession to make. Literary magazines have always kind of intimidated me. Give me an 800-page impenetrable work of literature any day. Like Captain Ahab, I'll pursue it relentlessly unto the ends of the earth until it unfolds its briny secrets. But facing a shelf of lit mags at the Strand bookstore, I always feel either underdressed or overdressed, like a dream where you're naked at the Vienna Opera or in head-to-toe Ralph Lauren at a Sonic Youth concert. Maybe all this started when I wrote a poem on the back of a napkin about a butterfly that, quote, split into bloom from the lip of a rock and sent that napkin to the offices of the NYU Violet or whatever it was called, and they somehow failed to publish it. I don't know. I'd keep this between me and my therapist, but I bet I'm not alone here. And yet, the literary magazine industrial complex is where so many of our greatest writers first see print. The Paris Review, for example, which first appeared in spring 1953, has published Adrian Rich, Ralph Ellison, Zadie Smith, Ali Smith, Nabokov, Philip Roth, and the list goes on and on and on. And if you can get over yourself and actually read it, it's pure pleasure. It's an immersive, eclectic refuge from the business and the busyness of the world. This summer, Emily Nemens was named the new editor of the Paris Review. She's a poet, short story writer, essayist and illustrator who previously co-edited the Southern Review. At 34, she's a fresh new steward for this venerable old literary gatekeeper. And it's an opportune moment to ask or re-ask the questions Who is a literary magazine for? What is it supposed to do? And how can it do that better? Welcome to Think Again, Emily.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: I was thinking about the beginning of the Paris Review. Was William Styron the first editor or was he involved early on? He was
1: involved early on. He wrote sort of uh, our manifesto separating the Parish Review from the trend in little magazines at the time which had fiction and poetry but also a lot of criticism right. and um, from the very beginning the Parish Review was interested in, in going straight to the source and celebrating literature, removing the intervention of the critic. And the interview series sort of was our bridge over to um, commenting and, and engaging in literary practice. So rather than having somebody at a desk analyzing the work Going to the writer and say, "How did that happen?
0: I mean, in terms of how those interviews are conducted and how they've evolved, is there a sort of a philosophy to the to the approach?
1: There is, and it's different than pretty much every other interview out there. I come from an oral history background, and so I love the expansive, expansive, expansive interview, you know, going all the way from day one to to the end of time. Um, the the goal for the parish review interviews is to, capture as much as we can of the writer's craft and practice and influence and and life and get them to share work that they might not share in a standard interview, that Mm -hmm. they might not have time or the inclination to reveal to, you know, a journalist on deadline. And so... The way that works is often there will be two, three, four sessions, sometimes, you know, in the course of a month, but oftentimes over the course of several years. um, A conversation, then a new book comes out six months later, then another conversation sort of circling back to themes. Rather than a verbatim transcript in the magazine, it's stitching those together.
0: In the coming uh, or the new issue, there's a long interview with Frederick Wiseman, uh, who I, I was very interested to learn would prefer not to be thought of as a documentary filmmaker, but rather as a, I mean, almost a a kind of novelist.
1: Right. And when, (laughs) you know, he sort of lets the hood up and shows how those stories are crafted, it makes sense that he doesn't see this as documentary. It's not journalistic. It's um, the way he's building his stories is it has a lot of his fingerprints on it. And I still think they're true, but I thought that was a really interesting moment. And, you know, with Fred, for instance, he's. 80-something, right? He's done a million interviews. And so part of the challenge in that case was to look at those interviews, see what he talks about, and see if he could talk about something else or something more, like push him. just, you know, we want everyone to be happy, but try to get them to reveal a bit more of themselves in their practice. You know, as editor, there's a certain amount of Yenta involved where, (laughs) you know, I'm trying to figure out who's the best person for this conversation. Sometimes it's someone I know personally, but is often it's asking the right people to recommend people and and, and casting a wide net cuz you can't expect every a good interviewer to necessarily be well versed in you know poet A or, right, or right, fiction right. writer B and and so then as those conversations are going forth you know the first one no pressure just let it let it roll we look at that transcript and then it's sort of more nuance of can we get a little bit more of this Vain, can you go down that road? Right. Um, those follow up conversations are really important for that, but it's all with nuance and a lot of finesse because, yeah, with a sheet of paper and these hard hitting questions, you're gonna you're gonna get a stone wall. Going back
0: to that kind of the like origins of the Paris Review and the the kinds of things that you know what it what it stood for in the beginning and and then you coming in in 2018 how are how are you thinking about that i mean first of all you've done an amazing job with this issue but it must be totally mind boggling in some ways jumping into the middle of this sea of this
1: yeah i mean it was long-standing a
0: longstanding thing
1: yeah I, I mean the logistics of putting together the first issue doing it in 2 months rather than your standard 3 doing it without a managing editor, like all of that was (laughs) uncomfortable, but it got done and I'm really proud of the result. Sort of more broadly, I think your question is sort of just taking on the institution and how does that feel? And, you know, I've been thinking about, you know, I I thought about that writing my application uh, six months ago, you know, I thought about that every step of the way in terms of why I wanted to work here and what I could bring to the magazine. And I think, in a lot of ways, it's a return to to that origin and a young, energetic staff that's willing to take some risks and try new things. Did you?
0: I'm sorry. Did you
1: hire like mostly a new staff when you came on? No, just a few, uh-huh, um, uh-huh. a few positions. Um, the staff is great. I think that the year, despite all the tumult of this year, that they've continued to do really great work. But with any transition, there's a little transition, and so um, we were understaffed this summer.
0: You had no managing editor. That's incredible.
1: Well, at the Southern Review, we were a two-woman band. Um, I felt like I often had, like, you know, a hi-hat on my elbow and right. and symbols between my knees. We were co-editor structure, and so I did everything from acquisitions to proofreading, and, and so it's familiar.
0: I mean, I think that's, like, almost universally true in media these days, unless you're at The New York Times and maybe even there, that everyone is used to wearing
1: a lot of hats. You know, we're a staff of 10, But our circulation is big and growing. I think we're at 5,000 subscribers from last year at this time. And what we can do, you know, if I was able to accomplish what I did in Louisiana with two, what can I do with 10? And if we can launch people's careers with a circulation around 2,000, what can I do with a circulation around 25,000?
0: So that really, I mean, that really is an important role that literary magazines play that I think maybe most people aren't aware of is that you do launch people's careers. I mean, that basically the lit mags discover often, not not solely, yeah. but often discover emerging writers, shepherd them along before they have a book.
1: Uh, exactly. Important. I yeah. mean, an early example of this at the Paris Review was you know, William and Rose Styron were living in Europe and part of the foundational team that made the Paris Review. And I, I met Rose in June, and she had this amazing story about getting a mailbag delivered to her in Italy of all these unsolicited manuscripts. You know, this new magazine was getting mm. all this attention and it was based in Paris, still holy. For a long time it was Paris and New York and now of course we're just New York. Gotcha. Um, but this roving submission pile followed them to Italy and her sitting in this flat, I don't remember, I think it was in Rome, and, and opening envelopes and reading manuscripts and finding Philip Roth, oh my god, and I think it was his very first story. So, so that, <laughs> wow, so that happened early on. And I mean, I've, I've done in my editorial career one of the first, um, one of my first issues. I acquired a story by Crystal Hana Kim, mm. and it was her very first publication. And tomorrow, actually, I'm going to go to her novel launch. Or her debut novel is coming oh, wow. out, and from William Morrow, and it's getting all of this great press. But you know. That's been a constant for literary magazines. We don't have necessarily the um, the constraint or the engine of having these really successful novels or the huge right. outlay. Um, from a marketing perspective, so we can take some risks, try some new writers, and and really just follow that enthusiasm.
0: I'm sure that for every one of those Philip Roth stories, there's also a thousand of the Philip
1: Roths that got away, and you can't like think like that, I guess. Right. And then there's also there's also the Philip Roths that don't become Philip Roths, where you just find a great story from someone you've never heard of, and maybe they're one and done, or maybe... You know, that's the right. story they were working on for 20 years and they're not going to have a huge career, but it's still a really compelling story.
0: I'm interested in the question of like, what is good? How do you think about that in terms of what constitutes quality or is it just more a an intuitive It's process? fairly
1: intuitive, but sentences matter. I, I guess for me, every time I read a new story, I'm thinking about it on a line level and then on a on a much larger scale, the macro scale, of what just happened in the story. What's the ambition of it? What is the writer trying to do? Do they land that? For instance, a couple having dinner. Like, that could be very boring if there's a huge emotional reveal or some real deafness of language or, or the dialogue is really just out of the park. I would be excited about that. Usually I'll have to read things twice or three times. The promising ones, you know, I'll read it at a different time of day a few days later and think about, am I more excited or less excited about this gotcha. the second time around? So so it is taste and it is intuitive, but I do have a pretty long list of things that motivate me to get excited about a piece of story, of literature.
0: Are there boxes that you feel it's important to check as well, just culturally speaking at this time in terms of diversity and so on, or are you trying to deal with pure meritocracy of story writing on on its own?
1: Um, The story comes first and the story comes last, but I am interested in making a balanced table of contents. And so the way that manifests for me is acquiring the best writing I can find and sort of thinking about it across several issues. So, you know, I had two sort of satirical, near future alternate reality stories. Love them both, one of them both, but to have them in the same issue would have been a disservice to them both. So I'm spreading those out. Um, You know, I'm sure you noticed in 226, it's all women. And that wasn't a comment on gender. That was a comment on, I read three or 400 stories and these were the top six. But that being said, I was interested in different kinds of storytellings, different, different tempo, and and tenor, and, and different life experience, and narrators that will take the reader different places. So it's diversity on many levels is a consideration.
0: One of those post-apocalyptic stories, there is a medication that's being given to yeah, people. Yeah, it's
1: called The Freshening by yeah. Rachel Kong.
0: <laughs> yes. Yeah, and which is hilarious, and bizarre, and strange, and wonderful. So people are being given a sort of mandatory medication that's been voted, like the public has accepted this, yes?
1: Right. There was, I think, some sort of
0: referendum Referendum in the
1: public. There had been all these race <laughs> riots in America, and the solution was to take a pill in which um, you essentially went colorblind, and everyone ends up looking just like you. Yeah. And which is terrifying, but <laughs> the way the narrator she's she's so conversational and so candid that she doesn't have anxiety or she does have anxiety about it but the way almost casually she's approaching this huge cliff
0: and it's interesting that that's the solution the solution is is not that it's not that everyone looks the same it's not that innate prejudice is erased it's that everyone looks like your demographic. Right. Yeah. Right. I mean, certainly it might be a practical solution to race riots, but the idea of all white people seeing everybody as a white person right. would well, be outrageous. I know? mean,
1: more specifically, it's a ridiculous solution, <laughs> yeah, yeah, but like yeah, yeah. I guess the moment <laughs> that she indicates of like a near political future and that from from where we are as readers getting to to that moment in every other way the world seems the same, right? And and so that's the the frightening or startling or very smart thing that she does is that it's this ridiculous premise, but her friend community, her everything else that's going on in her life in terms of missing her mother and and being lonely and looking for a companionship, that happens right now. That happens for all of us.
0: You know, the fact that that was the that was the first story in this volume, that said something to me. I mean, that that was kind of a clarion call, and clearly that was intentional.
1: It was intentional. I mean, it's a story about a reset, a reset gone awry, of course.
0: And so, you know, we can go also to the fact that this is a moment of reset for the Paris Review. As listeners may or may not know, the editor that you're succeeding came down in the Me Too moment.
1: You know, that they picked a young woman to lead the magazine that, you know, it's someone that doesn't come from that community and is sort of a reset in terms of a fresh start. I mean, obviously, I've been working in literary magazines for most of a decade, but you know, doing it independently and geographically removed from New York, uh, I think gives us a an opportunity to turn over a new leaf.
0: The previous editor was very much like in the family of the Paris Review for a long time, is that right?
1: Well, yeah, and and I mean It's a New York institution, and I want it to stay a New York institution, but New York is not the only place that people read, and it's certainly not the only place that people write. And so I think, you know, I have this network. Having lived and worked in the South and originally hailing from the Northwest, I have a network and an awareness of sort of a a broader literary community. And so I love New York. I'm so excited to be back here and to meet all the writers and agents and editors and, and people that are making publishing go around here has been great, but there are other resources out there and other readers, and, and trying to bring them into the fold as much as possible has been a priority for me.
0: In broad strokes and at risk of us like flying off into abstraction, okay. what do you think You know, your exposure to other parts of the country, to literary communities in other parts of the country might start to bring into the magazine in terms of the voice.
1: You know, I don't want it to become the South of France review or anything like that, but I think, you know, there's great work being written all over the country, and I, I come with this expertise and this knowledge of what's going on in contemporary Southern literature.
0: What is going on in contemporary Southern literature, broadly speaking?
1: I mean, there's a lot of different strains. There are several things that everyone's thinking about in terms of environmental impact and, and global warming, and and that is at the foreground and the forefront in the South. I mean, just because Louisiana's sinking, right? And right. when you think of beasts of the Southern Wild or um, you know some of the Katrina novels, global climate change has really affected the South in a way that it necessarily, not has not necessarily touched other parts of the country. So I think that there's some really exciting work being done about climate change in the South. I think, you know, thinking about race and race relations, um, you know, everyone, Rachel Kong's thinking about it. Um, everyone's thinking about it now, but that work's been something Southern writers have been exploring for quite a while, you know, and then this is going to get like a little woo-woo or (laughs) abstract but you know there's also just a different pace of storytelling and a different style of storytelling and we've all been impacted by by Faulkner and by Welty and by O'Connor and not just southern writers but all writers or most writers many writers but I think that the opportunity to sort of write outside of the industrial comp Complex, you <laughs> called Whatever it. Whatever I call it. Yeah, you, the
0: industrial uh, the literary, literary magazine. magazine complex or yeah, something. Which yeah,
1: which is a, a silly thing <laughs> and doesn't exist. But on a certain level, <sighs> it does in that there are these pockets of production where, you know, you're sort of in line or in this community in New York. And there's one in L.A. and there's probably one in Sh- there's one in Chicago. But right. to, to be, you know, on a farm full of peacocks and writing stories that feel really necessary without thinking about audience that same way. I think that has really gotten into the blood of a lot of Southern writers and, and gives this independence and this determination that I find really inspiring and and has created a lot of really good books.
0: The sort of the, the isolation, not being in the center of that, right. that kind of competition, the way a New York writer might be surrounded by other people to whose work, in a sense, you might be responding. Right, you know? right.
1: Yeah, a little creative isolation can go a long way.
0: This, I guess, this is the first issue in which you have guest poetry editors, and that's an innovation. That's something that was never the case before. Or right. I mean, other the journals
1: have guest I mean, within editors. The Paris Review. But within the Parish Review, yeah. Um, you know, you can sort of mark time. Through the history of the Parish Review by poetry editors. They often will be around for about five to ten years. Some have been shorter, some have been longer. But um, Robin Cresswell was there for eight years and did great work. Mm. But for him, it was sort of an end of an era this spring. And so rather than my first week saying, here's the new direction for poetry in the Parish Review, I thought it was this great opportunity. A lot of people will be reading the magazine to see what comes next over the next year. And rather than saying, let's go in one direction, I thought, we can go in four. We can, we can do a conversation between four different poetry editors about what they're enthusiastic about and what an opportunity for our readers, what an opportunity for a lot of poets who felt like they weren't necessarily, they didn't have the opportunity to publish in the journal under Robin just because he had his tastes and those are fine, right, right. but their odds are up by... You know what, three hundred percent. I'm right. not. I'm not here for math. Um, <laughs> but there, there's going to be a good chance to to share the work of a lot of really talented poets because it's an amazing moment for poetry. And I just I wanted to get as much of that as I could.
0: So these are four guest yeah. editors over four issues. over four
1: issues. So um, the fall issue is with Henri Cole. Um, I counted up his contributions, and he's actually published 25 poems with us and an art of poetry interview, and has conducted, I think, three interviews. So in terms of continuity, that felt like a really great opportunity and a nice gesture to say, you know, I'm new, but some things, here's here's some traditions that I really want to acknowledge and embrace and, and respect in my first issue. And, you know, he found new writers, but he also... Being an older poet, I think, is seeing this moment of of youth and energy in poetry and is excited about that, but also wants to sort of reaffirm an older generation doing good work. So, you know, we were joking like there are several retirees, quote unquote, mm-hmm. in the magazine. And, and that's not, you know, that's not retro or a throwback. That's just an opportunity to discuss writers are making new and exciting work at all stages of life. As editors and as magazines, there's, there's such a pressure to find the next new voice. Right. And I mean, what about Louise Gluck? Like, I just want a new poem from her. <laughs> yeah, so. yeah. Well, that,
0: I, and, that, and that's what I think about a lot in terms of your new tenure here, which is, you know, how you balance innovation with a brand, in a sense, that is known, you know, that has a long tradition behind it. Right. And that has a culture.
1: Stewardship is important to me. I mean, I think probably going back to learning how to be a professional via oral history and interacting with people several, not just one generation, but several generations older than me, it was really meaningful. And, you know, I did that when I was in my teens. And so then thinking about, okay, these are, this is a tradition and this is stewardship. Um, these are the things I want to bring forward into sort of the next gen of this magazine, uh, and mixing them together with new voices. And I think both are are served by that.
0: There's a political crossroads where that can get fraught. Like that that attempt to keep that balance can get difficult, which is to say, some of the decisions that are having to be made, and and, you know, I think some are some are going to be made well and some are going to be made poorly around the demands mm-hmm. that individuals are making in terms of representation, in terms of like who gets to speak for them, et cetera. You know, these are battlegrounds. And at those battlegrounds, some traditional writers are getting critiqued in a very, in a very mm-hmm. harsh way or even, mm-hmm. you know, thrown out the window um,
1: yeah, and I I don't have I don't have an answer to yeah, that. No I'm one just answer. mindful of it. I mean, at the Southern Review we had 3,000 previous contributors. I'm sure we have that many at the Parish Review, I just haven't counted them. And and so understanding that those are all important relationships but aren't necessarily that doesn't mean they're going to be in the next issue of the magazine. And so there's a way to approach those relationships with respect and kindness and generosity, but also keep in mind the future. Like, I am aware of the politics and I follow the media news, but I think it's more exciting to follow literature and, you know, I'm aware of what's going on in scandals at different magazines and even the scandal or what happened last fall at the Paris Review. And I want to be aware of it, but I don't think contributing to that media cycle is necessarily a productive way forward.
0: I think this would be a good place for us to move in a completely divergent direction. And for the audience, this is where the video team at Big Think has picked a couple of surprise clips on various subjects uh, for me, for Emily and me to discuss. And we haven't seen them before and we don't know what they are. So. I'm so excited. All right, this one is with Mickey Agrawal, and it's called A Lesson in Business Success from the Creators of Thinks, Tushy, and Daybreaker.
2: At the time, nobody wanted to talk about period. It's not a single press wanted to talk about it. America's not ready to talk about this, Mickey. You know, that was what I got every single day in 2013, 14, et cetera. And it was really, really, really hard. And so in 2015, we had scaled the business enough digitally, that we wanted to launch our first out of home campaign, our first subway advertisement. And um, you know, we were so excited. We, you know, my team spent weeks sleeping under their desks, you know, make, designing this, these incredible campaigns. And um, we, you know, we, ra- we ran up against an issue, which was the New York City public transit system officials basically said that we, they could not publish our ads in the subway because of the word period. And they said, you know, you know, people, the the people in the subway will be offended by it. It's offensive to riders. And we were like, interesting, you said that, and oh no, you didn't. <laughs> and um, it was really, it was a powerful moment that, you know, in the rest of the world, periods are so tabooed. In Nepal, women are still sleeping outside. they in, in, like, because if 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 they sleep inside their homes and their periods, and snakes will come eat their dads, literally, or the husbands. That's literally still happening. And um, and so you know the fact that in the most progressive city in the world, New York City, we could not put the word period in the subways was really like wow. It, it really brought this sort of this why conversation like grapefruits could be put on you know your breasts. Like there's so many other sort of breast augmentation ads. So many other sort of very sexual ads that could be on the subways, yeah. but not periods. Yeah, know. it was really crazy. Like. So there was such a such a, you know double standard. you know, you can use bre- grapefruits to represent augmented breasts, but you couldn't use it to represent a woman's part that you know, every single human is here because of that important time of the month. Not man, not one man, not one woman could be here without that important nutrients to feed the baby as we're in utero. So the fact that it's considered taboo is crazy. And so we decided instead of just slinking away to um, you know, and, and, and put away this idea of doing New York City subway campaign, we were like, fuck it, we're going to go fight it. And, um, and we put out an art. We, we basically sent an email out to all press, which, which when, we, when we threatened the New York City public transit system, we were like, we're going to go to press. And they were like, "Go ahead," and we were like, "You called my bluff. I don't know any press."
0: <laughs>
2: Shit. <laughs> and so I had like, I like found two contacts in press that I kind of knew. I'll never forget this. Mickey and I were DJing that night. Do you remember that? Yeah. We were DJing a party that night, um, some nonprofit party, whatever. Oh, and, yeah. and Mickey was like, "Oh my god, they wrote me back." I'm like, "What do you mean?" She was like. <laughs> she's like, I put subject line, scandal. <laughs> New York <laughs> City, scandal. New York City, scandal. And sent to all this press and media. And one of them wrote her back. And we I remember she was like, on her phone, we're like in the middle of like a DJ set. And she's like, holy shit, someone wrote us back. Yeah. And I remember being like, And it oh was so God. funny because Forbes and Mike.com both wanted the exclusives. But at the time, I was still like, you both can have the exclusive. <laughs> <laughs> and they were like, that's not how it works. And I was like, what do you mean? Like, no one's paying me money. So what do you talk about? Exclu- like, what? I didn't even know. Like, I thought exclusive meant they would pay you money to- I don't know. I So I, I got actually in trouble because I gave them both the exclusive. And eventually, um, Forbes backed down and Mike.com took the story and it went viral
1: internationally. My first thought was how far we've come considering this <laughs> summer. It seems like all the subway Campaigns are about ED, so um, I'm I'm glad to know the woman that that changed.
0: All the subway the, campaigns are about oh, oh erectile, erectile dysfunction. dysfunction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um,
1: so these women, they they really opened the floodgates. And I, thank
0: uh, thank goodness we thank have goodness. erectile dysfunction ads everywhere. Yeah, and those sad <laughs>
1: cacti. Um, no, I, I I mean it's inspiring to hear this story and and just a reminder of how uphill it still can be for women trying to get opportunities and equal coverage and
0: I find in I, the
1: most progressive city in America
0: I mean I was not aware that they had had that backlash from the New York City subway system I've been seeing their ads all over union square you know since but that surprises me I mean that the word period itself was still taboo and like on what grounds New York City could possibly have said that and and stood behind that, it's hard to understand. The other piece of this that I think is interesting is that they send a a memo out saying scandal, they get this kind of viral campaign going, Um, and the reality is that they're motivated to make a lot of money. Like, I mean, they've got, they're, they're, it's two things. I mean, you know, they're making, the 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 company is breaking ground socially in a sense, but they're also business people. This right. is not a pure like feminist right. protest as it were.
1: Right, this is a product.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I feel. An
1: evergreen, pro- well, not evergreen, but you know, 25, 30 years, more than that. 30 years, yeah. So, yeah, there's a big market and I think they recognize that and recognize leveraging you know, what, 52% of New York is, are women. And I don't know how many of them might need their product, but a big swath. So there's a yeah. real opportunity there.
0: Yeah, and I don't want to like dismiss what they did or say that business shouldn't happen, period. But I think it's worth noting that this political advancement is happening in the context of a product.
1: That being said, it's a product and it's a, I don't know this technology <laughs> particularly, but like, I think that, Women's comfort and just not even comfort, just functionality, has not been necessarily always at the foreground. And so, that's right. I mean, technology no, that's right. does change things. I, I don't want to go too deep into tampons, but like when that <laughs> happened, you know, women's lives were changed. When when the technology came that that's right. you know you could, you know, being on the rag was not a thing that would stop your daily life. That was a huge deal, and and it wasn't that. Long ago, that that change happened. In terms of, I mean, it was a while ago, but in terms of technology, and I really don't know menstrual history. Let's be honest. We're not meant to be experts on menstrual <laughs> history. <laughs> that's a relief. Um, <laughs> just like thinking about the way we we move through the world and expectations of beauty, and and those are all tied into products and yeah, and like and the presenta- beauty and presentation, and that's hugely and inextricably linked to products and marketing and business engines. But design solutions are also that, important. So I guess for me, I don't mind that there's a consumerist bent to it or that these women are are standing to profit. Like if there's ways and technologies and new products that are making women's lives better.
0: Also... Just the fact of having these kinds of ads out in the open, in New York City at least, and maybe eventually more broadly, it changes the culture such that women can live more comfortably in their own bodies in public and don't have to kind of, like, hide, you know?
1: (laughs) Right, right, exactly. (laughs) And I think about it also, like, I have a lot of friends that are have young children, and, you know, it's sort of part and parcel with with breastfeeding and, you know, maternity wear and, and things that facilitate mothers being able to... Go into the world and the culture and the stigma around that I think is not unrelated.
0: I think that we've said all that we can possibly say, probably. I for don't now have anything about, else to ab- say about,
1: about menstruation on the <laughs> <way. laughs>
0: Excellent. So let's see what the second clip okay. is about. Okay. Uh-huh. Okay. So we're taking we're taking the next step down the consumer road. This is called Condition to Consume, How the Economy Grew Past Its Natural Boundaries, and the expert is Vicky Robin.
3: talk about the old roadmap for money. And the old roadmap was born really out of the Industrial Revolution. It was born out of the sense that of the Wild West, of anything is possible, of, of manifest destiny, of uh, American exceptionalism, whatever you want to say, or, it, you know, you could go back even further, but uh, to capitalism itself. But the, the roadmap is growth is good, more is better. Whoever dies with the most toys wins. It's a materialist roadmap. And it, it, the part of the roadmap is not only that it's an empty world. Uh-oh, there were, you know, people here before the white people came. <laughs> no. and, and, you know, animals. And there was a living, there was already a living, mature society on this. No, no, no. It was empty. And then the other part of it, the, one of the essential ingredients of it that still people, even if intellectually they understand it, they do not get it is that in that roadmap, the economy can grow forever and the Earth is like just sort of a, a toy chest. You know, you can just keep reaching in there and pulling out resources, keep reaching in and pulling out resources. So the economy can grow infinitely because the Earth is an infinite cornucopia of resources. The fact of the matter is, is that the economy is a fabrication, our economy is a fabrication a set of rules inside a finite planet. There's a way to measure. There's a way to measure the human impact, the impact of human consumption on the Earth. Uh, It's called the ecological footprint. And they can measure every little scintilla of, you know, my watch and my eyeglass, everything I have, everything we sit in, everything we walk around on, they can measure that in terms of the amount of the planet it took to develop that. So we have measured the amount of planet we have, and humans, are consuming more than the amount of planet we have every year that can be regenerated ever since 1986. You know, that to me, that was, that data about overshoot has been a central feature of my life. Like, when I learned that, it was just sort of one of those things that's obvious, like, certainly we want to change. <laughs> so, um, so, the old roadmap, this idea that the Earth is a set of infinite resources, and the economy can harvest those resources every which way from Sunday in order to produce economic growth. That's fundamental. And then it trickles down to the human as more is better. And part of that is as the economy grew, as industrialization permitted more products to be produced uh, with less human labor, uh, there was a sort of a peeking out of, of consumption around the 1920s. and. It became a problem. Like, what are we going to do? So there's several ways to expand markets. One is you export and another is to educate your citizens to want more than they need. And then you've got an infinite way (laughs) to you've got an infinite market called the endless willingness of people to uh, buy into the story of more is better and keep buying stuff.
0: I feel like I'm only now starting to understand or or really feel the extent to which consumerism is like the driving force of our culture.
1: Yeah, I think about it <laughs> a lot. I, I think about it a lot right now, having just moved all of my things across the country. Um, stuff is, is very large in my mind, looming large. And it, it's interesting to sort of see how that manifests in different parts of the country, not just in my acquisitions, but sort of how commercial drivers and and consumer culture in different parts of the country, what it looks like in New York City versus what it looks like in Seattle versus what it looks like in the Deep South. Um, The Mall of Louisiana is a real forced to be reckoned with. People come, it's the only reason people come from New Orleans to Baton Rouge just to go to that mall because it's the best mall in the state. It it looks a lot different in New York but it's definitely still there in terms of, you know, what your sofa looks like or um, what kind of clothes people are wearing and and, and self-expression you have to buy some things to help you express yourself, and I get that. But having just put everything in boxes and unpack them again, <laughs> um, you know, it's not minimalism, because I think minimalism works for some people but doesn't work for everyone. Like, I, I right. want a lot of things in my life, and there are, if you do that test where you hold them and does it give you joy. Right, right,
0: the Marie Kondo. Uh,
1: yeah, I record. I have a lot of things that give me joy, like, in, you know, a 2,000-volume library. and. It's just gonna be a thing that is a pain in the butt to move, but I think it's worthwhile to to make room for that.
0: There was a minute, you know, maybe, I don't know, 2000 and around 2000, 2001, where I was going around saying, well, when all the books are digitized, surely we will not want to lug our 80 million books around. Why would we want to do that forever? You know, it will go the way of the carriage and horse, you know, and indeed it might. But I now very, very much understand why I would want to lug my books around with me. It's a very different thing. Browsing your shelves. Yeah.
1: yeah, it was interesting. We culled probably a third of our books, and my boyfriend did this thing that terrified me, but then was genius, which was getting rid of all of public domain, like all the Dover classics, mm. all the thing, like all, sorry, Jane Austen. Sorry, Charles Dickens. But, you know, we're walking distance from the Strand. So he was like, baby, you can go get If you need a new weathering Heights, you <laughs> right, we right, can right, go get right. it. But, but those books that I found when I was, you know, 21 and living in Spain and, and you know, schlepped this giant hardback from Escorial or something like that, right. I'm not going to find that again. And so we got rid of all these books, but it turns out they were all, like, you know, the dime paperbacks. And so it was still super right. heavy. All the hardbacks came.
0: I don't think it's things that are necessarily the problem it's it's our relationship to things it's whether you know what the things are that we have and why and then also to what extent the acquisition of things is the defining
1: and i i mean it's i'm a little she expressed a happy way forward. I mean, I find it a little scary to come back to my new building at the end of the day and see how many people got some, how many things delivered, like the, you know, the mail pile. And it's right. it's a big building, but it's not that big. And just the idea that the instant gratification of, I want something, I have a prime account, I can have it in 36 hours. Let's not think about the packaging. Let's not think about the, the impact of m- moving it around the world, or at least across the country, or yeah. at least from New Jersey, you know? Right. But but sort of the, the environmental footprint of that consumerism, that's the thing that freaks me out the most, I'd say. Yeah, and I mean, <laughs> there are certain things, like I found a pen at an art store in LA that I loved, and it was the pen I used for drawing cartoons for a long time, and the only way I could find it in southern Louisiana was on Amazon to get like the refill car- cartridges, and I was so glad for that, but. Everything else I tried to go to the local art store. So I'm that's sort of my guiding principle. And I think that she and I would have a nice cup of coffee together. Um I liked her necklace too. That that's not minimalist.
0: I know. I, I had exactly the same thought. I thought I said she has some stuff right there. She's mm-hmm. got a very colorful necklace. But then I found myself wondering whether she had in fact made it or something. It's a bunch of buttons covered in fabric.
1: I don't know if she made it, but I'm sure it has meaning. Like that that's not Like anything else I've ever seen, and it was probably a really special acquisition for her, too.
0: Yeah, yeah. I have
1: one giant necklace that was, you know, I don't spend, these earrings were a gift, but like I don't spend money on jewelry particularly, but we were at this festival in Acadiana, like out in Lafayette, and this woman had done, it's like a, is it Miss Frizzle, Miss Frazzle, the Magic School Bus? Yeah, oh, yeah, I guess (sighs) Miss. Frizzle. She, that sounds right, Miss Frizzle. But it was a solar system made out of enamel. Like, she cast the entire solar system. Wow. And hand-painted it. And it, it was so for me, that was, you know, conspicuous consumption. But it was also, I met the maker. I, I know that spending a ton of money on this piece of jewelry, a ton to me, a ton to her. Like, it was the most expensive necklace in her shop. But, like... I mean we're not going to Tiffany's here you know so but like that exchange that was the kind of sort of capitalist impulse that i like
0: yeah i think that's great you're supporting an artist making it possible for them to make a living making something beautiful with their hand
1: but you know the other end of that was like i got this job and i was like oh shoot i need a lot of new work clothes (laughs) and that exchange of like going to get new outfits or shoes that I felt like were socially acceptable for these kind of engagements that was not fun.
0: You know, there are people that are going to incredible extremes to try to live off the grid and so on and god bless them if that's what what they're trying to do, but I think for most of us it's it's a question of like micro decisions about what's better than what, how to live as well as possible. Right, right, I mean, it's a
1: navigation and acknowledging acknowledging that you're on the grid being aware of your impact on it.
0: I think the last thing I want to ask before we wrap is, I mean, this is probably too soon, but are you or how might you make room for your own art in this, life you now have like I mean the that is the drawing and the 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 other the other things you've done as is that like on pause for I mean for the
1: summer while I was learning this job it was definitely on pause um I just sold my novel and so I'm gonna be getting edits back uh later this month so I'm gonna have to make time for my own writing uh it was sort of a nice excuse to not think about sentences (laughs) that I made but sentences other people made for a while um but I will I don't need to sleep a lot. Oh, That's you're, sort you're of you're one
0: of these you're one of these humans, whatever well, they're called who well I'm
1: thirty five now. You in your <laughs> intro you said I was thirty four and I was when oh, I got okay, the job. Okay, all right. I, I was, but I turned thirty five this summer. I, I need more sleep. Like I went from needing five hours to now I need like six. But I don't know. I think I'll just need to be a little bit selfish about my time. It'll be slower. Um, you know, the first thing I did when I moved into the new apartment was set up my desk and unpack my watercolors. I haven't drawn yet, but the idea that I'm making that physical space to do it, and I know it's I know it's coming.
0: Emily Nemmons, I really enjoyed having you on the show. Thanks so much for being with me today.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me.
0: And you can find the latest wonderful issue that Emily edited at theparisreview.org. And with those thoughts about marketing and consumerism and how the sausage of literature is made, we are back for the fall semester of Think Again, A Big Think podcast. Lots of amazing stuff coming your way. Next week, an episode entirely about personality typing and the Myers-Briggs test and its very strange history. If you want to join our conversation in between episodes, come find us on Facebook at Friends of Think Again, a Big Think podcast. And we'll be back next week with something completely different. Hope you can join us.